delighted to be back at Spirit Rock. I've been traveling for a bit, as many of you know, and just to come back in the spring and have the hills so green and the meadows filled with those yellow flowers and the kind of vibrancy of spring. It's fantastic. Um, so I've just returned from uh, a brief trip, nine days in India and a couple of days in Thailand, teacher meetings with the Dalai Lama. still feels a little bit like the middle of the night or the middle of the morning or something, but I hope I'll be coherent tonight. What I'd like to do is to tell some of the story of this gathering with the Dalai Lama, um, because for its own value as Dharma teachings, um, and also to give those of you who've been involved with meditation practice for some time at Spirit Rock, to give a perspective that we're a part of some much larger movement than just our own individual practice. Um, my role in these meetings was to be the moderator, and so I began with the Dalai Lama by um, presenting him with this book that some of you may have seen called Buddhist America. The new edition, which is just about to come out, is a listing of approximately 1,000 Buddhist centers around the U.S. of Tibetan and Zen and Theravada and other such things. Twenty years ago, when I first came back from the monastery, there were a handful, literally maybe half a dozen, and now there's a thousand. So there's something happening. Um, in the last sutra, the last teachings of the Buddha, the Mahaparinirvana Sutra, um, the last great series of the Buddha's teachings before he died, he speaks about the importance of the gathering of those together who follow the path of the Dharma, the path of truth um, in their life, um, and how, it is, how important it is that people gather together regularly and speak about that which they value in their lives, that they gather in harmony, that they meet in concord and that they disperse in concord, that they follow the laws of enlightenment, the cultivation of loving-kindness, of virtue, of the practices of awakening of the body and mind and heart, that they honor the great traditions of the elders and ancestors, that they speak truthfully with one another, and that they preserve in the most personal way the practice of wakefulness or mindfulness, and encourage one another to live with contentment in this world, in this life. And he said, if you meet in harmony and concord and follow the teachings of the Dharma and speak truthfully, practice in your own personal life that which you value, then the Dharma will prosper and not decline on this earth. For as many years as beings come together in this way will these teachings be of benefit and prosper. And in some way I felt that the meetings with the Dalai Lama were held in that spirit. For 2,500 years there have been gatherings of elders and councils, of monks and teachers, and um, this was a new version of that. So we gathered in Dharamsala, in this little town in the far north of India that's perched up along the wall of the Himalayan mountains. And flying into the town, if you fly, as I did, um, 
to that part of India. You fly along the 2,000-mile rock wall of the Himalayas that goes up from 800 feet, the plains of India, 20,000 feet straight up. I mean, fantastic, unbelievable. And you look over it, if your plane goes high enough, and there is an ocean of mountain peaks, 20,000, 25,000 feet high, incredible mountains, ocean of snow peaks. And there in Dharamsala, the Dalai Lama uh, held this meeting in his personal palace where he lives. And there's a community of Tibetan refugees and temples, and the government in exile are there. And the town, is, this little village, is filled with Tibetan people. The refugees, in some ways, are some of the poorer people in India. I mean, they're refugees to begin with, and Tibet was not a materially rich country in the ways that we think of. So here they are, refugees in a very poor country with very little, and yet they're wonderful people, and they're incredibly happy. It's amazing to see all the things that they don't have and how incredibly happy they are, probably because they don't have them, right? <laughs> they're gracious, and they're generous, and the children are just smile at you. You could die just seeing the Tibetan children. They're so beautiful. I have some pictures of some little Tibetan children as lamas here, and they're just wonderful. Anyone wants to come and see. So we gathered together 22 Western Buddhist teachers, some Zen Roshis. Sure, go ahead. You're a child. You need to... Look at the kids on the other side of the world. Some Zen Roshis, including um, Bill Kwong, Jaksho Kwong Roshi from Sonoma Zen Center, and other Zen, Western Zen masters from various temples, Tibetan lamas and monks and nuns, several wonderful lamas from Europe, lama, uh, who had done the three- or six-year intensive training retreats as Westerners, French and English, Lama Drug, Drugyu and others, and then come out to be teachers, and various Vipassana teachers, to explore the problems and the possibilities of Dharma, Buddhist Dharma teaching coming to the West. And some of it was brilliant presentations. Stephen Batchelder, who's a Vipassana and Zen teacher and a historian, gave this wonderful lecture on the dialogue of the Buddha and the West, starting with the... Um, the uh, the Greek um, teacher Menander and his description of um, understanding what the Buddha's teachings were. And certain sutras where the Buddha mentions the Greeks. So already, even in the time of the Buddha, they were kind of talking to one another. And early Christians and, and how Buddhism changed when it went to China or Tibet and, and Japan and met the Taoist culture of the Chinese or the Samurai culture. The Dalai Lama was very, very interested thinking about this kind of history and how it might then apply in current time to the West. But then it was time, as he said, to get down to business and not just kind of talk about things of the past or um, what the blessings of the Dharma, but to really openly address the problems and out of this to see how we could work together. So we sat in a circle in this room in the Dalai Lama's palace for much of the week, and he was flanked by a half a dozen other great, respected Tibetan teachers. And he would come in, we'd all sit there first, and he would come in and he'd smile and he'd go around and shake everybody's hand. And even to shake hands with the Dalai Lama, 
um, he comes up and he shakes your hand and he looks at you to make sure that you're really, you know, there. And then it lingers for a minute. It's not like a cursory handshake, but it's that extra couple of seconds where you just hold your hand to make sure that you really made contact with him. It's totally wonderful to shake this man's hand. Um, so he, he comes in and I brought back a few pieces of wonderful Buddhist art. There's a tanka that you can see over there, a, a sacred painting. Um, which is uh, the Buddha Avalokiteshvara, or the Bodhisattva, who is depicted with 1,000 arms and 1,000 pairs of eyes. If you look, it's painted, you can count them. There's exactly 1,000 artists did. And that is the 1,000 hands to touch every single being in every realm, in every dimension of life, um, and to awaken in them the great heart of compassion and the awakening of the Buddha. The Dalai Lama is supposed to be that person. In, his, in, in the Tibetan mythology or understanding, um, that Buddha who brings compassion to every being is um, born each lifetime in the form of the Dalai Lama. Um, that's who the Dalai Lama is supposed to be. And he, he, he seems it. <laughs> He's absolutely wonderful. I mean, you get to hear my opinions a lot here, so tonight I'm going to talk about what the Dalai Lama had to say, sort of for a change and benefit. Um, from the beginning, he said, deep down what matters is only the spirit of compassion, only what benefits beings in every form, in every realm on this earth. And he spoke to us as teachers. He said, don't think how I can spread Buddhism in some way. It doesn't matter if there's even one or two more Buddhists. It doesn't matter at all. The only thing that matters is the well-being of each person and the well-being of the earth that we live on. This is what matters. And the rest of it is, is really secondary, is unimportant. So we began, and one of the early discussions we had was about um, transmission of, from teacher to student, the authorization of the role of a teacher. Um, who, who is a genuine teacher? You know, someone pats you on the head and says, now you are a Zen master or, or whatever. How does this happen? And we're talking about the different ways that happens. And um, uh, Kuang Roshi asked the Dalai Lama what was his perspective on it. And he was quiet for a moment. And he said, strictly speaking, no one can create a teacher. No one can authorize a teacher, say, now you are a teacher. said, it is only the students of that teacher who can do so. If what that teacher does brings benefit to the hearts of those students and brings awakening to the lives of those students, then you can say, yes, that is a true teacher. That's where the teacher comes from, by the benefit that they do. And in fact, no one knows, not even a teacher can know in transmitting to a student their understanding, you can't really know whether your student gets it or not, whether you can say, all right, this person now is ready to teach. Only within oneself can you know your own realization. So what matters is the benefit that you bring from your own practice to others around you. He said, however, nirvana, you should remember, nirvana has a wonderful smell a beautiful scent like flowers, a wonderful flavor. And you can tell, you can tell it when you're around people who are connected with nirvana. You can tell it around places where there's that, that, that odor, that fragrance of peace and that fragrance of well-being. 
and that fragrance of liberation. So he said, you should, you know, look for that, smell that, listen for that. Then the question came, well, what about imperfect gurus, imperfect teachers? You know, and in Tibet, one takes vows to follow a teacher, spend years following this teacher and doing whatever they say. And he said, you must go back and tell these Western students. He said, you must caution them. They should not take teachers so quickly, you know. Tell them they should spy on their teachers. <laughs> he said, said, maybe many years, four years, ten years, twelve years, you look to see. And only when you are convinced that this person is really has the kind of integrity, is really authentically uh, awakened in some way, that they will really be of benefit in your life, only then follow them. You Westerners taking teachers too quickly. Yes. So then we asked the Dalai Lama, and again, we all talked together and we all uh, had our own opinions, which I won't tell you about. I'll tell you. Yeah. Fortunately, the Dalai Lama thinks much like I do, so... <laughs> or... <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> so, then we said, all right, let's get, get down to even greater difficulties. What about the problems of the teachers even ones who are great Zen masters or great lamas in their traditions, who bop into town, you know, famous teachers, give these initiations, these high Tibetan teachings and so forth, which along with those initiations are vows that you take, that for the rest of your life you will practice these teachings and do it in this and such a way, or else you will betray all of the teachings. And then two days later the teacher splits to go, you know, do it, do it in Las Vegas or Des Moines or somewhere else, you know, and they come and they give these high teachings and then they disappear and there you are left with this, you know, this great initiation and all these vows you've taken and no support. And the Dalai Lama thought about it, he said, mm, I must talk to these teachers. He said, you definitely should not give practices and initiations unless you are sure that students are fully prepared and that they know that they understand the practices and can really use them in their life. This is not something to play with or, or bring crowds about. And then he thought for a little while. He was kind of quiet. And he kind of looked up sheepishly. He said, you know, of course, I am doing this with the Kala Chakra <laughs> initiation, he said. But it is different. The Kala Chakra is, uh, Dalai Lama is one of the few people in all of Tibet who can do this wonderful teaching on the wheel of time and the the liberation, the awakening from the illusion of the whole cycle of existence, of birth and death. And um, it's quite an extraordinary teaching. And he said, you know, I'm thinking, he said, maybe if I just go and teach about ethics, no one will come. <laughs> so I go and I say, Dalai Lama is doing Kala Chakra initiation, great teachings, many thousands of people come. He said, I'm not so concerned about the initiation, actually. Then I teach them about kindness. That's really, he said, I get them to come and I teach them about kindness. And that's really what matters for him. It's not, and so he said, I mean, he was a little sheepish about it. He said, all right, you know, I know I do it too, but I don't do it in order to give people vows or practices. If they understand that, that's wonderful. But I use that as a vehicle to teach what's, what's more fundamental and important. So we talked with him about the difficulty of the role of the teacher and how isolating it can be, and how one needs colleagues as teachers and friends, 
as we do in the Vipassana community, we really team teach retreats and have a lot of colleagues and time to rest and not always be in this role. And, and someone was presenting these kind of difficulties to him and said that it, it's important that teachers have time to be off duty, not just in that role. And the Dalai Lama said, off duty? And that's his translator, what does this mean, off duty? And they're kind of back and forth, trying to, took him a little while to figure out finally, oh, off duty. And then he kind of meditated for a little bit. And he looked at us as teachers, he looked around the room, and he said, bodhisattva off duty? <laughs> you know, it's like, Buddha off duty? Hmm. <laughs> Very strange concept, yeah. <laughs> he said, you know, your responsibility, I mean, you might not be teaching all the time, but your responsibility is to your practice. He said, even I, he said, one time I'm staying in a hotel, and there's this television. He said, and I turn on, and there's, what do you say, dirty movie. <laughs> he said, so first I think maybe I should just turn off, and then I think, well, this is my practice, I will look. And then it is a, arousing some feelings, and I think, no, I must meditate, and I did. I said, this is very important, I do my meditation, and so I watch for some time and do my meditation, and then I turn it off. He said, every, t every place must be your place of practice, no exceptions. So it was wonderful, wonderful. Of course, as it was clear in the meetings, he said, there were many, many difficulties that you would encounter as teachers, but that's our job. Um, it's not that it's supposed to be easy, uh, but to work with those difficulties. He said, even the Dalai Lama has many difficulties. There's a story from the Zen tradition that I heard, actually, from one of these Zen teachers there, of a very intensive training program in a Zen monastery where you come in, and you practice for 10 years. And after 10 years, you're allowed to say two words to the Zen master. So this student came in and practiced for 10 years. Actually, he practiced for longer than that. But after 10 years, he had his interview. And he went in and he bowed to the teacher. And the teacher said, yes. And the student said, hard beds. <laughs> and the Zen master said, yes, I know, but there's, you know, you can learn to overcome obstacles in practice and just have faith and keep practicing. And of course, the physical difficulties of the body will always be there, but our practice is to transcend those. Now you must go back and practice more. So he practiced for 10 more years, came into his interview and bowed to the master. And the master said, yes, how is it going? And in your practice, he said, bad food. <laughs> the master said, yes, I know, you know, we're renunciates. We don't eat in a very fancy way here, but this is a way of surrendering and of not expecting everything from life, and it's part of our practice. You must learn just to take what's given and live in a simple way, and it's purifying for the heart, and I'm sure you will learn it. You know, stick with it, and you know, so he went sent him back. Ten more years passed. <laughs> comes in to see the master. Bows, well, what do you have to say? Two words, I quit. <laughs> and then the master said to him, I knew you wouldn't stick it out. All you've done since you've got here is complain. <laughs> the point of it the point of the story, and really the point of a much of the dialogue in the meeting, is that spiritual life is not about avoiding difficulties, 
but about bringing the spirit like that sacred painting, bringing to every difficult circumstance the power of our heart to transform it in some way, to bring benefit, to awaken, even in those difficulties. So then we talked about what about if you have conflict with your own teachers, with a Ajahn or Sayadaw or Roshi or Lama, you know, where they want you to teach one way, and particularly as Westerners, where we see another way might be better. Or worse yet, where there's ethical problems with this teacher who's supposed to be a great teacher, but is doing something that's unethical. Or where you've taken this, these great tantric samaya vows with your teacher where you, where you promise for um, as many lifetimes as you come into existence to bind your spirit, to awaken together with this teacher. Um, what to do when you face problems with these teachers. And the Dalai Lama, and the people were, certain people particularly, who had had that in their, in their lives, in their practice, it was really a, an agony for them, a very great difficulty, because they loved their teachers and had learned these incredible things. And, on the other hand, there's this other stuff that was terrible, and what to do, the kind of divided loyalties. And the Dalai Lama said, you know, it is the same for me. He said, when I was younger in Tibet, I had two regents, in my case, who were um, to care for Tibet while I was still uh, not coming of age as a Dalai Lama. And these regents, who were also teachers for me, were power-hungry, he said. And they began to fight, and they fought, and one got the Tibetan army, and the other got part of the Tibetan army, and it was terrible for our country. At one point, I had to even call in the, the Chinese army, which is a very terrible thing because that's part of, the, part of the consequences of that was the loss of Tibetan freedom. He said, these are terrible things. He could feel how wrenching it had been for him. And he said, and I had to publicly denounce my own regents and my own teachers to step out of that and say, this is wrong. This is not following the Dharma. He said, you must let people know what is wrong. Put it in the newspaper if you must do so. But tell people there is no price that is, uh, that is worth paying to cover up that which is wrong. We must let people know. It was very, very kind of compelling to hear him speak. Then one of the Western Zen masters who was there spoke about their conflict with their own teacher, the kinds of difficulties they had with the ethical conduct or other ways of their teacher. One of the kinds of teachers whose understanding is that ethical rules are for students, but masters, lamas, whatever, they're above rules, so forth. You know how that goes and where the story ends, anyway. Uh, and yet this, this person was asking, how can it be because this teacher is a, quite a fantastic teacher, really had extraordinary interviews or koan studies or, or whatever kind of Zen practice it was, you know, and very deep shared realization of the void, of shunyata, of enlightenment. Um, how can it be then that this happens? And the Dalai Lama listened. He said, hmm, I've wondered for some time. I, I'm, I'm kind of tentatively asked this question. But I've wondered sometimes about some of the kinds of understandings that you have, whether in Zen or other traditions, maybe even our tradition. 
some of the understandings that you call enlightenment or emptiness maybe maybe needs a little bit of questioning here he said because if there are ethical difficulties with teachers it means somehow that their realization is incomplete that it's not real enlightenment or it's not complete enlightenment in some way he said if you have a genuine experience of shunyata it doesn't mean the void of emptiness of disappearance of things but of interdependence to understand to awaken to the to the true nature of things is to discover our genuine oneness with all beings to discover the value of all life of every life is a part of your own life you can't separate yourself even from the insects they are part of what keeps you alive on this earth he said and you think well maybe i'm better than an insect because i can think or write or something but then if you look closely what says that you have a greater right to be here than this insect in front of you in another way if you look perhaps he said the insect is better than you are it has for one thing it has more innocence than you do doesn't it he said and perhaps that insect is less destructive than you are so you have to really see if your enlightenment is genuine it doesn't leave out a single creature so then we talked sometimes very frankly the stories about particularly the kind of betrayals or scandals or painful situations where teachers got so isolated and then misused money or power or sexuality the kinds of things that one hears about not just in buddhism or hinduism but you know in in all kinds of positions of power in the church whether it's television ministers or priests or or doctors or whatever it happens to be and how frequent these kind of things can be when teachers become isolated and then we talk about the problems that give rise to this not only the isolation of teachers and how to avoid that but the kind of myths that support it for example the teachings of crazy wisdom dalai lama said crazy wisdom hmm you know no such thing i think crazy wisdom maybe not possible <laughs> kind of excuse um and then someone said well you know there are these teachings in tantra that you teach of the marriage of the masculine and feminine this kind of symbolic wedding inside these great practices and these paintings of men and women um joined in a in a union and that these tantric teachings also sometimes in the stories happen literally between a a man and a woman and dai lama said yes there are stories like the great tibetan teacher Tilopa who slept with various students and they were enlightened from this. And I said, "Well, this is this is part of the problem, your holiness. Um, you know, this might be nice in theory. Um, but who, you know, um how do you actually do this practice?" And he said, "Well, I don't know. I'm a monk myself, but he said, although people have asked me to do this with them, but I'm a monk. I'm not." <laughs> But he said truthfully you can only do such practice if there is no sexual desire he said and it, what this means is that if someone gives you a a glass a goblet of wine and a glass of urine and a plate of this ambrosia wonderful food and a plate of excrement you must be in such a state that you can eat from all of the all four of those things and it makes no difference to you what it is he said then maybe you can do this practice So then someone said, "Well, how many how many lamas, how many teachers can do this?" He said, "Mm, very few." 
And then one of the women sitting there said, well, who? Would you give us men? <laughs> and he thought for a while. And then he looked up and he said, zero. zero. Nobody that I can think of. It was a very important moment, actually. You know, and then somebody in the back of the room said, well, at least we have a taste test now, you know, if these people want to try it. <laughs> give them the taste test to see if they're ready. It was Bob Thurman. So then I said, all right, all right, Your Holiness, let's take this a step further in trying to consider this. Imagine, take this picture, because it's not uncommon. Imagine that there is a woman who comes to practice. It can be a man, because it happens for men as well, who has grown up in a family where there has been abuse, whether it's been physical abuse or even worse, sexual abuse in some way by her father or uncle or someone in the family. And that leaves her very gravely wounded in much, much pain for much of her life, not feeling terrible about herself, feeling that she is dirty or unworthy or confused and terrible. And then she hears about the Buddhist teachings of compassion and awakening. And she comes to a teacher, a lama or Zen master or whoever it happens to be. And the master says, ah, wonderful. A dakini come to complete my mandala teachings, you know, which is this is sort of the Tibetan language for using that, and uh, you know, like a like another a female angel to come down and and we will do wonderful tantric practice together, and so this lama or teacher whoever it is says, come come into my bedroom and I will teach you the higher teachings or whatever, and they have a sexual relationship, and then two weeks later the lama or teacher whoever it is goes on to the next person, and she who came for healing and for teaching, then feels used like an animal or betrayed because this was someone that was really going to benefit her and instead doesn't at all do that. And worse, what it does is the same thing that happened to her. It makes the very same pain compounded because here she finally thought she would find some healing, some release from this. And instead, it's done all over again by the teacher and then she has nowhere to turn. She's come to the Dharma as a place to find healing and liberation, and now she has no one to go to. And he really understood that. He said, this is terrible. We cannot have this happening. So what you must do when you see this happening, teachers, whoever it is, is first refuse. If something is wrong, you must refuse to go along with it. You must stand up and explain why you cannot do it, even fight with your teacher if necessary, and then if necessary, leave. And he said, if there's anything that I can help with, if there's anyone that, that you know that I have some authority with, you must tell me because I really want to know. He said, even if it's your own teacher, if it's really destructive, put it in the newspapers. Tell people that this is just not right. It is a sacred trust to be a spiritual teacher. And we must educate people that this is corruption. This is not the teachings of the Dharma. So then he said, mm, many problems. Do you have more problems? Bring them out, he said. That's what we are here for. You know, Later we can celebrate. Now we will face the problems. So we had a day on, part of the day on psycho psychology, psychotherapy, and meditation, talking about the wounded student and the wounded teacher. And how many of us, 50%, 75% of us, come with histories of abuse, physical or sexual, or, or pain in our families, or trauma, or grief? How many people come to spiritual practice in the West 
for some kind of healing to heal our hearts or our bodies or regain a sense of trust of ourselves or, or some self-love or self-respect. And again, the Dalai Lama is amazed to understand. He's been told it many times in these last years how much self-judgment and self-hatred there is among people in the West. And so I said, others said to him, people come and they're given complex visualizations or practices of following their breathing or, or some koan to work on. And what happens when they first sit in meditation is none of that at all. It's just all the unfinished business, the sorrow, the pain that's been haunting us for a long time re-arises. And we come, those of us in pain, looking for a new family looking to do it over again in a conscious way, in a loving way, what was difficult before. And so we talked about the skillful means that can come from the best of Western psychology. And he asked questions, are these techniques in accord with the Dharma? And there was a series of wonderful presentations, a woman who works with Akong Rinpoche, Edie, um, a woman who works with Akong Rinpoche in Scotland, to develop a five-year Dharma psychotherapy program where you do five years of work on your personal history and your emotional and physical body and body work as part of the preparation for deep meditation, um, really in conjunction with Tibetan Buddhist practice. It was wonderful. Another, another teacher from Europe who was talking about uh, the way that her community blends these things. And I spoke as a psychologist, kind of giving the Dalai Lama some of the tools that, that come from the best of Western um, psychology. And his questions were simple. Is it a benefit to students? Does it help them? Does it help them practice? He said, you know, in Tibet, in the big monasteries, not only did we have meditation teachers, but we had counselors. We had people who were there to really attend to the needs of people in the most personal ways. And maybe that's what you need in your centers. You need counselors as well as meditation teachers. And we talk more about other problems, sectarianism, how to avoid the things in Burma or Thailand or Tibet or Japan where teachers and subgroups, they fight with one another and judge one another. The Dalai Lama was, he said, you know, it is so hard even among Buddhists. At times I feel closer to the Christian leaders I've met, to the Pope and these other, other Christian leaders I've met. There's this great sense of rapport. But even between different Buddhist leaders sometimes, there's such a sticking to, well, this is our tradition and this is the way our scriptures tell it. He said, so we must really work to not have this repeated um, in this next generation in the West. And I was able to present to this group of teachers, um, Spirit Rock, as a kind of a model where we have a way of practice, but we invite teachers from other traditions, lamas and Zen masters regularly to come and also to share their teachings so it's not so sectarian, that we've published a code of ethics which was presented to that meeting as a, as a kind of compact between teachers and students of what we see as the proper way of conduct for all of us, that we have a systematic teacher training, that we don't work with hierarchy so much that our board works on consensus rather than kind of an authoritarian model talked about the interracial Buddhist council that were beginning to address the issues of racism, which was very interesting. Hopefully starting a hospice here through Spirit Rock and various things like that. And the whole group was really interested in part because most of the Dharma centers in the West were started by 
Japanese roshis or Tibetan lamas, uh, with all the costumes and bells and kind of culture um, of the Asian traditions there. Um, and the Vipassana community, the insight meditation community, is one of, is, is really unique in that it's mostly been Westerners who've begun. So we didn't even have to think about all of the cultural pieces and began in a very, very straightforward American way. And in that sense, we're really a model for a lot of these other people of what American Buddhism or Western practice might begin to look like. And they were very, very interested. So I, I tell you a few more stories, go, go along further. Then it came a morning where it was time to talk about the relationship between men and women. You know that story, don't you? And particularly how women have fit into or not into the patriarchal structure of Buddhism and those countries, those cultures, for so many years. And one of the teachers um, who was there was a woman, Sylvia Wetzel, who's a Vipassana teacher and a Tibetan teacher, both in Germany, a wonderful woman. So she sat down, and I, each morning I kind of introduced people and what we were going to do and so forth. And she said, Your Holiness and the Rinpoches and Lamas, I would like to teach you a new meditation, a visualization that you have not practiced before. Hmm, that is very interesting. They're kind of perked up. <laughs> She's going to teach them. All right. So she said, I would like you to begin to meditate and imagine in this hall, we were in this wonderful room in his palace with a big golden Buddha at the end. Imagine that you enter this hall, visualizing your meditation, and this big golden Buddha, you look closely, is a female Buddha, Aryatara. And you say, oh, beautiful Buddha. And then you look around in all the tankas, the great paintings. There were dozens of wonderful paintings on the walls. They are all of women. Bodhisattvas, Buddhas, all are females. And they are all choosing to be females because it is the most beautiful and best way to express the teachings of enlightenment in this world. And then you look in front of you, and there seated in the center is the 14th Dakini Dalai Lama, who has always come back as a woman because it is the, the, the deepest expression of compassion to come uh, into the world in a female form. And next to him is the 16th Dakini Karmapa and all of the other great women teachers of the lineage. And then they begin to teach. You know, the great sutras where the Buddha, she says this and she says that. And of course, when we use the word she, we mean to include you men as well um, in that word. We welcome you. There's a place for you in the back to sit with us, but we ask that you not speak too much. Um, and then um, in the great monasteries and the traditions, we teach about the benefit of being born in a female body and how, yes, it's possible to be enlightened in the male body, um, although it has some difficulties, but we will assist you as best we can. <laughs> if you want to come, you can visit our monasteries and, and come in. We have some little cottages on the side, if you don't mind helping a bit with the cooking and cleaning. Right? I would have gone to India just to see their faces at that moment. It was just fabulous. It was great. So that was finished, and that really took the Dalai Lama back. He got that one. She was, she was talking about language, and she said, you know, in, the, in these world languages in French um, or in English, we talk about mankind. It's not womankind, it's mankind, you know, or the word for, 
for humans in French is homme. It's, it's the same word as for man. And she said, this is the history of all this. History, Dalam. Dalam said, history. Oh, even this word, history. <laughs> he really started to listen. You know? So then she was followed by, and the women were at this meeting were spectacular, by Ani Tenzin Pamo, who is a Western uh, Tibetan nun, 30 years of practice. She spent six years in a monastery in Ladakh, up in near Kashmir, and then 12 years in a cave in Lahul Valley on the border of Tibet in northern India, 12 years in a cave practicing. Beautiful, wonderful woman. Very quiet. I didn't think she was going to say very much. Um, but it was her turn. She followed Sylvia. And she said, Your Holiness, I would like to speak about what happens to us women as nuns. She said, um, The Buddha invites the sons and daughters of good families to go forth um, to take ordination as you have, Your Holiness, and live a life of simplicity and kindness and contentment which is totally devoted to the truth and to compassion. Um, and it is these people, the monks and nuns, over 2,000 years, who've gone off um, to be a shining example for the world that one can live independent of materialism, of grasping of all the things that have entangled and brought so much pain to this earth, that the Buddha asks that we go forth and be that kind of example. And of course, she did it so eloquently. The Dalai Lama loves monks and nuns, and it was, I was ready to go and be a monk again by the time she was finished talking about it. It was beautiful. And then she said, now let me tell you, Your Holiness, how it actually is for us as nuns. We ordain out of this great faith and wonderful inspiration in the Dharma. And we're given our robes, and then a few days later our teacher leaves. We're not told how to wear our robes, we're not giving teachings on the vows that we've taken. We're not really given teachings at all because the women have such a low rank in the monasteries that they're not cared for. We're not given places to stay often. We have to fend for our own and find our own food. The lamas are too busy teaching at big centers and traveling in the West and trying to spread the Dharma or doing whatever they're doing. But women are at the very bottom. I mean, after everything else is attended to. And sometimes we're sent to help as secretaries, or to cook, or to support others. And I've seen so many women, Your Holiness, come and ordain and want to live the holy life, this sacred life that you offer, and be so incredibly disheartened, or so discouraged, or so um, try to practice as I did in a cave or a monastery and get so little support that in the end they leave, and not because they didn't want to do it, but because no one even knew they were there doing it. And she spoke in such an eloquent way that by the time she was finished, he, the Dalai Lama put his head in his hands and he wept. And then he looked up and everybody in the room cried after that. And he looked up at her and he said, you are outrageous. He said, this is outrageous. And I didn't know it was that difficult. Then he said, so what can I do? And then Ani Tupton Chodron from Seattle, who went next, said, Well, Your Holiness, we have a list. <laughs> we would like there to be a very slow selection process, a whole year, and have Westerners as well, Western nuns and monks, 
as well as the Tibetan lamas to help guide who should actually be ordained. We would like there to be a nunnery. The Dalai Lama said, done, we will do it. We would like there to be a nunnery which is built to train and support women teachers and for Western and Tibetans to come and practice. He said, done, we will do that. And he said, we would like there to be a council. You, the Dalai Lama has said, I can't change rules myself. I'm just a monk. It takes a council of elders to make things equal. Men, men and women change rules. We would like there to be a council that meets to look at the inequities between men and women and to figure out ways, especially as it comes to the West. We know we might not be able to change Tibetan culture, but to change it as it goes to the West. Dalai Lama said, I will call a council. They said, when will you call it? He said, soon. They said, how soon? <laughs> I, okay, six months. I will do it in six months. Okay. We would like there to be, and this, a couple of monks spoke in a very eloquent way, beautiful monks from Europe as well. We would like there to be a teacher training for lamas who are coming to the West to learn about Western, the, the problems, the emotional, psychological problems of students they'll encounter, the ethical issues that have, that have been beset teachers, um, the ways that they can support Western uh, teachers and students. We would like there to be training. Done. We will set up such a training. So it was, it was fantastic that, that morning. There were lots of other wonderful presentations. Alex Burson, who's a master translator, talked about language. And he goes around the world teaching Dharma in Estonia and Uruguay and Tasmania. He's been to more countries than I even know the names of. Um, and was really talking about the problem of translating it, not just into American culture, but into world culture. We spoke for some time about engaged Buddhism, which is one of the things that the Dalai Lama is very dear to his heart, the need to address the issues of poverty and injustice and the weapons, the arms race and overpopulation and the things that are creating so much suffering in the world. Someone brought up the issue of overpopulation. The Dalai Lama said, I practice birth control, he said, a very gentle form of birth control. Then he looked at one of the other monks, Ajahn Amaro, who was there from Amravati, a good friend. He said, you, Bhikkhu, what do you think of birth control? Ajahn Amaro said, I think it's a very good idea. He said, but actually, I think we Buddhists also practice rebirth control. Right? And the, the Lamas thought that was the funniest thing they'd heard in a really long time. Not just birth control, but rebirth control. <laughs> and the Dalai Lama said that for himself, he has a personal crusade about the arms sales in the world. He said, you know, if people get angry and they have weapons, they can do horrible damage. If they're angry and they don't have a weapon, then maybe they hit each other with their fists. Not so bad. Doesn't matter much. But when we are selling, as the U.S. is, the now the number one exporter of arms in the entire world. We pay for our good life here. We import all, all this oil and Japanese cars and all the stuff that we have. You know how we pay for it. We export weapons. And then we wonder why we're not safe in this world. So the Dalai Lama said, we must speak about this over and over again and must make a change. In the end, Basically, the whole spirit of the meeting was very empowering. It was as if the Dalai Lama, on his part, really gave back to the Western teachers who were there. He said, drop the titles. Don't, you don't need to call yourselves Lamas or Roshis. Drop the costumes. Change it to fit your own culture. He said, I myself 
if the truth were known, he said, I'm not even sure of some of these teachings, heavens and hells. I don't know. Maybe our Dalai Lama is a heretic too. Except he is Dalai Lama, they will not kick him out. You know? <laughs> but you must see what is true for yourself and what is true for your culture. And you must be the judge of that. We have to make these changes even if our own teachers don't understand. So together as a group, we drafted a letter that was a, spoke of the issues of this, that we came together to speak about not Buddhism, but really the benefit of the sacred teachings of virtue and compassion and awakening for beings around the world to benefit beings of peacefulness. And that we wanted to fight against sectarianism, to undo the the causes for sectarianism in Buddhism and among all spiritual traditions. And that we very strongly stood for ethics as the foundation for teachers and students alike in spiritual life. And we invited all other Buddhist teachers to join us in creating. We didn't want to kind of impose it, all right, now we're holy and you're not. But we invited all the other Buddhist teachers to whom we'll send this letter to join us in future years to create a common code of conduct and ethics. And um, uh, Dalai Lama suggested that we meet every year, or some group of people meet, and, which was, was wonderful. So we went over this letter that we drafted together with him, and it was wonderful to watch him listen to all the points of the letter, because his mind was so lucid and diplomatic, and he would stop and say, is that the best word? Maybe people will feel that as judgment, judging or condescending. It doesn't honor them. Let's change the language a little bit. Um, it was like being with Thomas Jefferson or something. He had the most exquisite lucidity of mind and language and great compassion with every word. He wanted it to be just the right word. Somebody said the Dalai Lama's mind is like a diamond. And whichever facet, whatever direction he turns it to, it, it comes with clarity and beauty. And he's a beautiful personality, which I would say normally was an oxymoron, you know. I mean, Every, the, everything that he did had this sense of graciousness and beauty about it. Um, and I talked about the fact that we are having the first American Buddhist teacher meeting here at Spirit Rock in September and invited him to come. He'll be in San Francisco the week after that, unfortunately, but he will be here and maybe we can meet with him in some way. He'll be doing teachings in uh, the middle of September um, in, in the Bay Area. And then the Dalai Lama said, you know, I really don't have so much authority. You must not put it all on me. People wrote this letter and they wanted the Dalai Lama to sign it. And he said, you know, we must really all do this together. And he smiled a little bit. He said, besides, it will take a little weight off the shoulders of the Dalai Lama if you sign the letter too. And I, I knew it was true. Um, and he went on to say, you know, what really matters is that we go back and use... Our, our hearts and our, our Dharma practice and what we've learned to awaken in every man and every woman and every child that spirit of the Buddha that is there to be awakened. That's all that really matters. And so we come together to meet in this way to facilitate, to make that possible. Um, and eventually out of this meeting there are a whole series of tape, of um, videotapes that w were made that will be available to people of eight sessions with the Dalai Lama and a book and, and uh, a network for, for Dharma teachers and so forth. In the end of the meeting, we were all kind of giving 
prayer shawls, scarves for the Dalai Lama, and he was giving gifts, blessings back. And then he looked around as we ended, and he said, you know, we began, and you were all so serious, and so many problems, and so respectful. He said, now and as the week has gone on, I see everyone smiling more and more today. Everyone smiling, very happy. I think means we had very good meetings. <laughs> it was just a wonderful way to end. And somehow, for us here at Spirit Rock, I tell these stories. You know, the day that we opened at Spirit Rock several years ago, and I don't even believe in these things particularly, but they say in Tibet that when wonderful things happen, rainbows appear. Those of you who are here, you know, there were two rainbows the day that we opened. And there aren't rainbows that often in this area. But what we are doing here is really part of something that's much greater, which is a movement. Buddhist is one part of it, and ecological sensibility is another. There are many, many facets to it. But it's really a renewal of what is sacred in the world and bringing peace in this valley of Spirit Rock to create a, a place of peace and of, of truth and of awakening for many, many generations to come. And this is a kind of experiment that we join together in as the Dharma comes to a whole new culture and a new world. And it's really an honor to share that together with you as a, as a community. So let us sit for a minute. Sitting, feeling your own breathing and your human life, just being alive in this moment, present. Be aware of your own heart, the great heart of a Buddha that rests within each one of us, and the potential that you have for compassion, for justice, for clarity and awakening. And let yourself sense how this is the, the seed, the heart of your spiritual practice. To remember this, to nourish it and to bring it into every dimension of your life.
we'll chant just that simple sound that we work with of letting go, opening, letting the body and heart and mind open. The sound, ah. As you go about your life this week, may your heart and spirit be as beautiful as the Dalai Lama, only in your own unique way. Maybe the Dakini Dalai Lama, or whatever form you take. And it's just a pleasure to see you all, my friends, and to be back. So I thank you. <laughs>